And let's uh, open our Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. This is not my text verse for this evening, but I want to read what Paul says in chapter 1, verse number 29. He says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. I've repeated that verse several times throughout the study of Philippians, and that verse is really key to the Philippians' understanding. Far from this modern idea that we have being taught by so many preachers today, this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, uh, all of that, that really comes in conflict with the Apostle Paul. We're, we're told by preachers today that if you will invite Jesus into your heart and all your troubles will melt away, all of your sicknesses will be gone, your kids will no longer get measles, your back trouble will be healed. I even heard one preacher on television say one time that if you have enough faith, you won't even get a cold. And they tell us that God does not want us to suffer. God doesn't want you to be in any financial difficulties, and if you trust God, then you'll just have a better job, your boss will respect you. And really, you know, if you have enough faith, one morning you're going to go out and find two brand new cars in the garage. You know, if the Philippians heard that, their first thought would be, that does not fit my description. There must be something wrong with my faith, because that doesn't match me. And in reality, that is so far from what the, the truth that the, so far from the truth that the Philippians couldn't really find an example of that in all their acquaintances. And certainly they couldn't find it with the Apostle Paul. And so if they heard that kind of doctrine, then they would have to think, well, Paul is, is a man of little faith, and Paul is a man of negative thinking because he just doesn't fit the bill for that kind of message. And yet as they listen to the Apostle Paul and they read this letter that he wrote to their church, Paul is always upbeat. I mean, whenever they hear from him, he's happy no matter what's going on with him personally. He was in prison while he wrote this letter, and yet he tells the Philippian people to rejoice. He'd been through many trials for the sake of the gospel, and yet he says, rejoice. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And he followed that up in, in that chapter by speaking of the trial of the faith. But the apostles continue to preach this same message, rejoice. And yet every one of them is living out Philippians 1.29, that it's given to you in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. The apostles say, rejoice. And to us that seems to be incongruous with suffering. And yet rejoicing is not mentioned in passing. In our text verse tonight, it is God's command. Now, after that's the whole introduction. Stand up now and let's read our text verse for tonight. We're finally going to get to that. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4. One verse here. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for those who've come tonight. Bless us as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. That is a statement that's spoken as an imperative. Now, that means that it's a command. And it's not spoken just once, but it's repeated here for emphasis. And further than that, it's not just try this and see what happens and try it and get it over with. The command that we have here from Paul is to rejoice always. 
And we wonder, how can the apostle command this? How can you tell somebody that they must rejoice? Rejoicing seems to be a subjective thing. Uh, rejoicing depends on everything else that's going on. Rejoicing depends on how much money that I have in the bank. It depends on how things are going at work. It depends on my family relationships. may even depend on whether my husband or my wife woke up in a bad mood today. That's all figured in to whether I can rejoice. And so we look at this whole thing as depending upon the circumstances that we're in. Now, I'll get to circumstances in just a minute, but the question is, how can he command this? Well, the answer to the question is really to follow the theme of this epistle. This is a letter written concerning joy and peace. And it's not necessarily the joy and peace that we find by things that are going on in the world, but the joy that we have in Christ. The the background of this entire epistle is life in the Spirit. Now, one of the things that we notice here as we begin reading chapter 4 is that there is no mention of the Holy Spirit in these verses that we've looked at so far in this fourth chapter. And yet, that is really the theme of, of this chapter and the theme of the entire book is life in the Spirit. Now, if we look at verse number 1, we see that, that Paul speaks of love. We look at the, the terms that are expressed here, Paul speaks of love. And there he's talking about love for the brethren. In verse number 2, it's love again because what Paul is trying to do here is to root out a problem of division. And division is always corrected by love. In verse number 4, it's joy. And in verse number 5, he says, "...let your moderation be known unto all men." And that simply means, or it's an expression of long-suffering. And then you'll notice in verse number 7 that he speaks of peace. Not one time in those verses is the Holy Spirit mentioned. But do you know what the source of love, joy, long-suffering, and peace is? Listen to Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. So Paul can command this because God has given the ability to do this because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. What God commands, God will supply. Now we also notice that he says or shows us how it's possible for you because he says here, rejoice in the Lord. Not rejoice in your bank account, not rejoice in your health, don't rejoice in your prosperity, don't rejoice in your family. He says rejoice in the Lord. And why is that? Because the Lord is the only unchangeable constant in our lives. Now this evening and for the next two weeks, I want to talk to you about reasons for rejoicing. For your spiritual well-being, when things aren't going so well, we need to understand and look at some reasons for rejoicing. And the purpose of this is that we might have some stability in our lives. There's so many things that are going on and we get tossed around by all the changing influences of the world We need to look at the things that are constant and find our rejoicing in that. So, what do we rejoice in? Well, I think that we have to start here. Number one is that we rejoice in God's salvation. I think we have to put that at the very top of the list because this is what gets us into Paul's mode of thinking. Now, Paul uh, is writing to Christians. And, of course, you don't become a Christian unless you have salvation in Christ. Nobody is naturally a child of God. I know that people put that out there and they think by virtue of your humanness, just the fact that you've been born into the human family, that means you're a human being and so you are child, God's child. 
Well, Paul agreed with that in only one sense. If you remember back in the book of Acts, he, he was preaching and he said, well, we're all the offspring of God. But Paul did not mean that in any sense that we have a relationship with God naturally. And he didn't mean it in the sense that we can call God our Father and he calls us his dear children from any natural generation. In fact, the very opposite of that is true. Every person born into the world, the Bible teaches, is an enemy of God. We have a sinful nature. We're dead to God. We come into this life with the wrath of God upon us. We come with judgment upon us. We come with guilt and shame. And the Scripture says that we are children of wrath. It doesn't say that we're children of God. Something has to change for us to become children of God. And that something is salvation in Jesus Christ. That something that has to change is the new birth. That something that has to change is that we must have a new nature. God's children have the nature of Christ. And that's given to us in regeneration. And that's when you become a child of God. Now rejoicing in salvation has some component parts to it. You can break this down and you can thank God for the steps that were that were done in order to bring you from spiritual death into spiritual life. So I think that you can rejoice, and I'm going to give you uh, three areas concerning salvation. You can rejoice first in conviction of sin. Now these are elementary steps. I'm not trying to break any new ground today or try to teach you something you never heard before. But these are just some things that we might be prone to forget, and we need to remind, be reminded of them. These are things that need to occupy our minds so that we focus on the Lord and not all of these things that are going on around us. So we rejoice in the conviction of sin. Now, if you're a Christian, you know that conviction is not comfortable. You didn't want to be confronted with your sin. You didn't want to be told that you were a sinner. You see, the gospel of Christ is offensive to people because just about everybody thinks that they're pretty good. I mean, even the worst among us think that we're pretty good. I remember reading a story about a man who was a bank robber. He was a a killer back in the days of prohibition. He'd killed several people, and he was just a ruthless man. He was a brutal man, and he could kill people just as easily as we would step on a bug. One day, the police had him cornered, They tracked him down and had him cornered in a house, and they demanded that he surrender himself. But he refused to do so. And so the police began to fire fire their weapons into that house. There's a hail of bullets, and that man was was struck. He He was hit by one of the bullets, and just as he was about to die, when dying was inevitable, he scribbled down a note on a piece of paper. And the the police found this note lying next to his body, and the note said, People just don't understand me. They don't realize that I really have a good heart. Even the worst people among us think that they're really good people and they're not sinners. And so when you give the gospel to people, they can become angry because that, because, with that because they don't want to be confronted with sin. Now, I am a firm believer that in order to make a proper gospel presentation, you have to confront people with their sin. Now, I know there's so many people that like to start out this way. They want to talk about how God loves you, and that's a wonderful thing to speak about the love of God. And they present it in such a way that God just can't live without you. And so God sent Jesus to die for you. And if you trust him, he'll take care of all of your cares, all to be taken away from you. And they never get around to the issue of sin. They never talk about repentance from sin. 
So they want to talk about faith, but they don't want to talk about repentance because that means you have to confront people with this issue of sin. Now, I say, say, thank God, rejoice in this, that you were convicted of your sin because God opened up your mind to the truth. He made you understand that you were a sinner. And when your heart was opened up to that, then you believed the truth. And there was a difference that you saw. You saw hell was gaping wide open for you. As Jonathan Edwards said, you were suspended by the thinnest of threads and you're justly deserving to go to hell. And if it weren't for the conviction of our sins and God granting us repentance from our sins, then we could never be saved. And so rejoice for that, the conviction of sin. But it's not enough just to be convicted. You don't want to stop with that because you also rejoice for cleansing from sin. If all that God did was to make you aware of sin, there wouldn't be any rejoicing in the conviction of sin because conviction only brings you realization of misery. See, there's a lot of people that are living in misery and they don't even know it. And the reason they don't is because they have no frame of reference. And so if God convicted you of sin and he just left you with the realization of sin's consequences, then you would have conscious misery. I mean, you wouldn't be able to think of anything else. I mean, if God had convicted you, truly convicted you, and he didn't go any further than that, then you would sink into an unrecoverable depression. But God convicts of sin in order to bring you to faith in Christ. That's what spirit conviction is about. It's to bring you to the place of repentance and faith. And Holy Spirit conviction, the inward call of the gospel, always results in repentance and faith. That's what we call the irresistible call of God. When God comes to you and speaks to your heart and makes you realize your sin, then grants repentance to you, then you turn around and you do the opposite side of the coin, and that is you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus. Now, in that moment of turning, that's when Christ's blood becomes effectual for the cleansing of your sin. And so rejoice because Christ took the penalty of your sins. John said he loved us and he washed us from our sins in his own blood. So keep that on your mind every day. Uh, God showed you how sinful that you were. He showed you where you were going without him. He showed you had no hope of escape. And then he allowed you to repent and then trust Christ as your Savior. So keep that in mind. Think about those kinds of things and you really won't have a whole lot of trouble uh, doing this command to rejoice. Now the third thing that we do is we rejoice in correction in sin, correction in sin. You see, salvation is not just about your past sins. It's not about what you've uh, you've done in the past, but God has an ongoing salvation. God is still working in you. That's what Paul says in in chapter 1, verse number 6. And remember, that is the key verse of Philippians. If you haven't underlined that verse, write out beside it. This is the key verse of Philippians. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. So God keeps on working in you until the time that you're free from all of your sin and you're in the presence of Christ. As you go through life, you get sullied and you get stained by walking in this polluted world. Sometimes you fall into the temptation of sin. And that's when God is there to lift you up and give you correction. Sin is never good for you at any time. And so uh, God... Uh, corrects you, God, God comes to you in that sin in order to maintain fellowship with him. 
Now, we've explained this many times before. We need to keep this in our minds, that when we become a Christian, the, the relationship that we have with God is a permanent one. You can never lose your relationship with God. But it is possible to lose your fellowship. And that's what happens when you fall into sin. But God never lets us get away with our sin because he always has this desire to draw us back into his fellowship. He's always correcting us. God is a good parent. And a good parent believes in discipline. Now, you may not believe in discipline. You may not think that you ought to discipline your children. They kick and they scream and do whatever they want to do. God is not that kind of a parent. He corrects his children when they sin because he knows that's best for you. So what does he do? Hebrews explains it to us very well. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll read some verses here. You might, you might want to refer to this from time to time when, you know, when God gets out his belt and uh, you're in the middle of chastisement, then you need to read these verses and see what that's all about. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read verses 5 through 11. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. Verse 5 says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now there is where we start recognizing why we're corrected. God does this because he loves us. Rejoice because he loves you. Verse 7. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Now that's kind of an interesting way of putting this because the writer just assumes that every good parent knows that he must discipline. It's like this is always done. And he says, so where is there a son? Where is there a son that the father doesn't discipline? So he equates love with discipline. Verse 8. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. And there, of course, he's talking about Christians. If you're a child of God and you walk wayward from God, then you receive chastisement. All are partakers in that. He says, if you don't, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now there's something that you need to understand about chastening in this passage. We get the idea, when we talk about chastening, we we talk about God whipping somebody, if you want to put it that way. We, We get the idea of a little child, and a parent takes out the whip, or takes out the belt, or uses the hand, whatever they're going to do, and they spank that child, and the reason that they do it, it's punishment because the child has done wrongly. But God does not chasten us for punishment. We never receive punishment from God because our sins have already been punished in Jesus Christ. So he's never punishing us when he chastens us. What God is doing, he's correcting us. He's giving us instruction. And what he's doing is rooting out all of the sin so that we might receive fellowship and blessing from him. Now, verse 11, it says, Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, you might want to underline this part, peaceable fruit of righteousness, because there is where you find your joy. The end of your chastisement is peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
That means that you're no longer at odds with God and you're in the place now where you can receive God's blessing. So every Christian ought to rejoice in God's correction because what he's doing, he's keeping you in the place where he can continue to shower down his blessings. So all of that comes with our salvation. Conviction of sin, cleansing in sin, of sin, from sin, and correction in sin. And so when you see that, when you see where God is going with your salvation, how could you help but to rejoice? Now let's go on with another reason. Rejoice in God's salvation. And then number two, rejoice in God's sovereignty. Now you know that is a favorite subject for me. And I can take a lot of different directions here. But I'm going to stick with just a couple of aspects of God's sovereignty. Now, if you're not saved, I think everybody in here is probably saved. But if you're not saved, then you're not going to rejoice in God's sovereignty. Lost people do not want to think about God's sovereignty. William Ernest Henley was an atheist, wrote a poem. His most famous poem that he wrote was called Invictus, which is Latin meaning unconquered. Let me read to you the words of his poem. He said, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now that is refusal to admit that God is sovereign. That is defiance against God. And it's refusal to believe that no man is actually the captain of his soul. It's God who controls the destiny of all men. And if you're saved and you know that, you're not defiant because of that. You rejoice because it's all in God's hand. Now, in the first part of the message, I mentioned circumstances. I mean, we're weighed down with circumstances, but we rejoice because God controls all circumstances. Now, we're studying Revelation on Sunday nights, and if you get nothing else out of our study in Revelation, you need to get this, that God controls all circumstances. I remember a couple of weeks ago we were reading in that, uh, the last verses of chapter 11 in Revelation. And that's where God gives that little respite in the text there to the people of God. They're going through persecution. They're going through the trials of the tribulation period. And God just gives them a little spot there to, to catch up a little bit, to catch their breath. And God shows them there that despite everything that's swirling on around them, he's still in control. And so he gives them a look at the end of the story. And we read this in in that 11th chapter. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And that was spoken well before the end of the tribulation. It's spoken before the millennial kingdom comes in. And God says, here's how it's going to turn out. God states it as if it's already done. It's so sure that that it's as if it's already done. All time, all events are in God's hand. So what's going on in your life right now has never thwarted the purposes of God, and it can't. It can't thwart God's purpose for you. Now, we're used to taking a verse like Romans 8.28, 
And that's kind of a, a throwaway verse for, it, uh, verse for us. And what I mean by that, that's, that's kind of our catch-all, our catch-all verse that takes care of all these things that are going wrong. And we quote that in times of trouble. We say, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And we focus on this part of it, work together for good. All things work together for good. And then we find our hope in there, we think. But we skip over this other little part that says, according to his purpose. It's working according to his purpose. And I think sometimes we misquote that because we think that he's working it out for our purpose. If it was for our purpose, then we wouldn't quote it in times of trouble because our purpose never coincides with trouble. God's purpose may, but our purpose doesn't. With our purposes, we're never going to take anything bad with the good. We always want good with good. And so the end result is that whatever things are good, then that's what I rejoice in. But that's not what the verse is teaching us. No matter what happens, whether it's good or bad, if it's working out for God's purpose, it's ultimately for our good. And it doesn't depend on circumstances. Now, circumstances put you on an emotional roller coaster. When, when uh, the stock market's up, I'm doing well. I'm on a high. But if the stock market is down tomorrow, then I'm going to be on a low. There's a crash. I'm up today because the pollen count is low. But tomorrow, you know, that may be a different story. I'm up today because things at work are really going great. But I'm down tomorrow because I could get laid off. So up and down, up and down, just riding that roller coaster of emotions every day. Now, this is how we know that Paul is not talking about circumstances. He's talking about God. He's rejoicing. He says, rejoice in who God is. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, the Philippians could not find rejoicing in persecution merely for the sake of persecution. The cause has to be higher than that. So if they're persecuted for righteousness' sake, that's okay. That's not going to bother us because they're fulfilling the purpose of a sovereign God. Now, you remember that they were worried about Paul's imprisonment. Uh, They didn't like that. And and in chapter 1, he steered them away from, from their worries. And he says in verse 12 of that first chapter, But I would that ye understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So God's purpose was being fulfilled by the circumstance. They couldn't see that until the results start rolling in. And you might not see how that God is actually working things out for your good until the results start rolling in. You may not see it immediately. The important part of rejoicing is to remember God is in control. Then we have another place in Scripture where we find that circumstances can't or shouldn't deter rejoicing. And it's in the book of Acts. And really, you could just pretty much take the entire book of Acts and you see over and over again bad things that turn out for good. But particularly in chapter 5 in Acts, there's that story of Peter and the apostles that were preaching the word at the temple. They were in the midst of, I guess you could call it a healing campaign. Not, not healing campaigns like we have today. But they were in the midst of a healing campaign. They were preaching the word of God and people were getting saved. And they were on a charged up emotional high. I mean, I'm pretty sure that they were charged up about that. But the next thing that you see is that the high priest and his compadres, the Sadducees, they come and they seize the apostles and they throw them into prison. Now, that's a low, isn't it? They're on the high of the preaching, and to us it looks like they're on the low because they've been thrown into prison. But what happens immediately after that? There's an angel comes, 
An angel comes and unlocks the prison doors and lets them out. So now they're back up on a high. They're up on top again. But the priest, the high priest and the people in the temple, they find out about this and they go to fetch, well, they first go to fetch them out of the prison in order to bring them to trial, but they find out that they're not there. They've been delivered from the prison and they're out back on the streets preaching again. So what do they do? They go and they, the high priest sends the captains and the leaders of the temple and he says, go seize them again, bring them back here. And so they capture the apostles again and bring them back before the council. That's when the high priest says to them, didn't we tell you to stop preaching? And here you go. You're out there filling Jerusalem again with your doctrine. And then the Bible says that they beat them and they told them not to do it again. Now, here's what we think. Well, there's that high, low, high, low, up and down, up and down. It looks good, looks bad, looks good, looks bad. And you would expect that the apostles, their heads are spinning by what's going on here so fast. But let's read what the apostles really thought about this whole thing. Acts 5, verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, folks, here you see the purposes of a sovereign God. And they refuse to let that roller coaster of emotions affect their joy. So they rejoice because God is in control. Now, we know the story uh, of what happened to all the apostles. Eventually, circumstances lead to the death of every one of those apostles. All of them are martyred except one. And we think, wow, that's okay for him. He escaped and he's unscathed. He he didn't get martyred for the cause of Christ. But you know what happened to him? That was the Apostle John. And they say that the Apostle John was boiled in oil. And that failing to kill him, they just exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. There are many people that believe when John wrote the letter of the Revelation, he was suffering terribly from having been boiled in oil. Well, what about the circumstances? Well, you have to read a little bit further. You get towards the end of the book of of Revelation and you find out a wonderful thing about those 12 apostles. The Bible says that their names are written in the foundations of the heavenly city. The 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem had the names of all the apostles. Who cares about the circumstances? They're serving a sovereign God. Now, let me give you one more point of rejoicing about God's sovereignty. Then we'll get through with part number one. Rejoice because God is consistent in all cases. God is never unpredictable. Now, we know that Paul says that God's ways are past finding out. We don't understand everything about God. But one thing we always know about him, we do know this. He is always consistent. God never acts outside of character. Now, if you're looking at circumstances, circumstances never stay the same. You can have a job for 30 years, and all of you know there's an economic downturn, and before you know it, you can be set out on the street in a heartbeat. Circumstances change. If you look at people, people will fail you. People are fickle and changing. And we see that in the church. You know, there are times, and I've been in church all of my life, All of my life I've been in church and I've seen a lot of people come and go. And I've seen so many people that we thought were stalwarts in the church. That they're always there, they're always seen to be consistent, they're always faithful. But then there's a changing circumstance in their life and they fall out of church and they become unfaithful. Something changed and so they change. You're never going to get that with God. If God was ever any different today than he was yesterday, 
then you'd have no reason to have any hope in your salvation. You couldn't have any confidence. You wouldn't know that by obeying that you would get an expected result, and so you'd never know what to do. So we couldn't rejoice in a God like that because every day would be a day of uncertainty. I don't know about you, but, you, you know, uh, things, when they're, when they're not the same, they're kind of upsetting to me. Sometimes just having somebody in the congregation sit in a different place throws me off. And, uh, you know, I can't think straight because you're not sitting in your right seat. Well, I like consistency. And when things aren't consistent, then I'm not too comfortable. Well, thank God for this. I don't have to worry about that with him. He's always consistent. Here's what the hymn writer said, and this is a beautiful hymn. You know it. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay and all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth faint shadows flee. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. Now you hear those words in the beginning. Change and decay and all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. We rejoice in God's sovereignty because we cannot control circumstances. The sovereign God has the power to remain consistent because he controls all circumstances. And not only that, he controls all the contingencies that are based upon those circumstances. You see, we have a God who's not a wait-and-see God. And I know that's the way he's often preached. You know, I don't know how many times that I've heard this in an invitation. In fact, I, I think I read this in a book that was put out by a popular ministry, and, and, I, and I hear these things from time to time. But it kind of goes like this. God has done all that he can do, and now it's up to you. Now, can you believe that after a gospel presentation, preaching a gospel sermon, and telling people that Christ died to save you from your sins, that then the preacher says, God did all he can do. And now it's up to you. Now, what is it, where does that leave us? That, that ha- makes us think, well, the outcome's uncertain here. It, it depends upon me. But what have we just been talking about? What's my problem? I don't have any consistency. If the outcome is up to me, I don't know what the outcome's going to be. You see, a sovereign God never stops short of his intended purpose. If it's up to me, I change. That's because my actions are uncertain when it comes to salvation. What I need is the absolute certainty of a sovereign God to work in me. And I'm glad it's up to him, and it's not up to me. So, friends, rejoice in God's salvation and rejoice in God's sovereignty. That's just a start. We've got some plenty more to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your blessings, and we thank you, Lord, truly, truly for your sovereignty. And we do thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We are so thankful, Lord, that you control all things. Uh, None of this is left up to us. And we thank you for your consistency. We can always trust your promises. So bless this, Lord. Uh, Bless our time together. We thank you for it. And bless us as we sing. And, Lord, we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.